What we need to understand about Nehemiah and Ezra is that these guys are supremely concerned with the Lord. These guys care about God and they care about God's glory. And what they've done is they've studied the Bible, they've studied the Torah, and they have discerned from the Torah what God's program is. And, and what God's program is, is he, He's going to indwell the temple in Jerusalem, He's going to install a Davidic king there, and then that Davidic king is going to rule from the perspective of the Torah, and He's going to enforce the Torah, and He's going to make it so that in Israel, uh, people obey the law and they do what God has said. And then, and then it's going to be realized what Moses said, that this, this good law that is given to Israel is going to be their glory. It's going to be their wisdom. When people see the way the Israelites live and they say, who has a God like you have who, who's drawn near to you and given you such a superior law code as you have? And, and, and this is going to glorify the Lord for His wisdom, and it's going to image out, radiate out God's glory. And, and, and Israel, as they rely on the Lord, this great God, this incomparably magnificent, saving and judging God, as they rely on Him, He's going to glorify Himself by giving them victory over all their enemies. And so the, the peoples around Israel are going to be subjugated to them, and then they're going to enforce the Torah over those peoples. And then those peoples are going to image forth the glory of God. And so it's as though radiating out from the temple in Jerusalem, the vision for the kingdom of God in the Old Testament is for God's glory to, to just swell and, and move out. And, and, and the Lord will be magnified as Israel righteously lives the Torah. Well, they can't do that if there's no temple. And that's why there's this great concern in Haggai and Zechariah to get the temple rebuilt. And they can't do it if the people don't know the law. And that's why there's this great concern in Ezra for him to study the Torah and do it and teach it in Israel. Well, if we've got the temple and we've got the Torah, well, still, if we don't have walls around a city in the ancient Near East, that city is vulnerable. That city is is powerless against its adversaries, and it's going to remain a, a place that, that nobody wants to live. No one wants to live in a city where the walls are broken down because it, it's like you make yourself a sitting target. You make yourself, you paint, you paint a target on your back, you put yourself in a prominent place, and then you basically say, hey, come plunder me. Come take what I have. I'm in this place of prosperity, this place of merchandise, this place that is is, is, is somewhere that people go to buy and sell, but there's nothing here that, that's going to protect me from you. So marauding bands or raiders or whatever that comes along, anyone can come in at night because the walls are broken down. Any, any, any invader or raider or, or what have you, they can just come in, they can plunder the people, kill the inhabitants, and then move on, having enriched themselves. And so it's a dangerous thing for the walls of the city to be broken down. And, and, and we see in the book of Nehemiah that they have, to, they have to choose by lot who's going to go into that city and live there because it's dangerous to do that. And, and, and it's easier, it's safer to stay outside of such a vulnerable place because you're not noticed. You're not a sitting duck. You're not a, a target. And, and so people don't want to go up to Jerusalem and, and live there with the walls broken down. Well, this is bad because, because God's glory is supposed to be radiating out from Jerusalem, and that's not going to happen with the walls broken down. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they learn what God's program is, they know the, the agenda, they understand it, and they want to see it enacted. Not for their own glory, not for their own namesake, for the Lord. They, they want God's glory to be seen. They want people to enjoy the goodness of living under God's law. They want people's lives to be, to be protected and, and um, enriched and, and strengthened as they live according to God's Word. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they love God and they love people, and that's what drives them to do what they do. So look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1, and we read here the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
Now, it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, uh, back in Ezra chapter 7, he referred to the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. That's 458 B.C. The 20th year, 13 years after 458, that takes us down to 445 B.C. So that's where we are, 445, 446, 445 B.C. Nehemiah doesn't immediately tell us who he is. And, and so this, I mean, Nehemiah is this high-ranking official, but he doesn't disclose that right away. What, what all we see about Nehemiah at the beginning is here in verse 2, uh, verse 1, he says, as I was in Susa, the capital. So we know he's in Susa. And then verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So we know that Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital of Persia. And we know that he has a brother who has traveled back to Judah. Now, this was no little affair to travel back to Judah. It could take anywhere from three to five months to make this journey. So this is a significant commitment to make this trip. Think about taking the next three months of your life to travel, largely by foot, maybe by donkey or maybe by wagon, from one place to another. I mean, that's quite an undertaking. Most of us have a lot of other things that we plan to do in the next three months, and it, and it doesn't include uh, getting up from camp and walking all day long until you make camp again. And then you get up the next morning and you walk again until you make camp again. And, and 20 to 30 miles a day for three months, maybe some of those days you get to ride a donkey or a wagon. Maybe some of those days you walk the whole day. But eventually, after three to five months, you arrive at your destination. That's a, that's a long trip, and it's a significant undertaking. And, and, and it would require, I think, uh, a, a certain level of social mobility because... Most of these people, they probably have dependents, they have wives, they have children, and, and so you've got to either provide for the people that, that you leave behind or be able to take them with you. And when you go on such a journey, you're really dependent upon your ability to buy food. So, so you're going to need to be able to provide for yourself for the next three to five months. And so you're either going to be able to, you're either going to need to be resourceful, really resourceful, and come up with food and water on your own, or you're going to need to have sufficient funds and su sufficient means to acquire food and water on such a journey. So this tells us a little bit about who these guys are, but not a lot. And then Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, in verse 2, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and Shame, and here's why. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destro destroyed by fire. So what you have are these, these large stone walls that have these wooden gates. The wooden gates have been burned and the stone walls have been broken down. Nehemiah's response to this shows his concern for God's glory to radiate out from Jerusalem. He tells us in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the book of Nehemiah is going to begin and end with prayer. Now, Nehemiah has already told us quite a bit about himself. He, he's, he's in Susa, the capital. He has a brother of some means. He's supremely concerned for the kingdom of God, and that's evidenced by his concern for the, the city of Jerusalem. And he's a man of prayer. He, he's not, he's not self-reliant. He's not worldly-minded. He's praying and fasting and weeping and mourning before Yahweh. Verse 5, Nehemiah writes, I said, O Lord Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Now what Nehemiah is going to do for us is biblical theology. He's going to tell us about God in the terms and categories derived from the Bible. So he goes on in verse 5, The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Now, Nehemiah is doing exactly what Solomon talked about in 1 Kings 8 at the dedication of the temple. Uh, when, when they're driven out of the land and they confess and pray to you here in heaven and act, 
1 Kings 8. And he's doing what Moses talked about back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. When Moses said, you know, you're going to go into this land, you're going to act corruptly, and I'm going to drive you into every nation under heaven. But from there you will seek Yahweh and find him when you seek him with all your heart. So Nehemiah is confessing his sin. He's seeking the Lord. He says in verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he's a man of the book. He knows what Moses has commanded. And he, and he apparently knows not only the law of Moses, but also texts like 1 Kings 8, where, where Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple. And then he calls on the Lord to remember, verse 8, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. He's basically here going to quote Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Verse 8, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They, they, Nehemiah says, are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And now at last Nehemiah tells us who he is and who he has in mind. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So look at the three requests he's made of the Lord. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And then and then in the middle of verse 11, give success to your servant today and then grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So Nehemiah calls on the Lord to remember what he said to Moses and then essentially to hear his prayer and prosper what he plans to do, which is he's going to seek help from this pagan king. He says he was the cupbearer to the king and we need to understand what this entails. Uh, for Nehemiah to be the cupbearer of the king would mean that before the king drank or ate anything, Nehemiah would have tasted it, which means Nehemiah is risking his life every time the king has a meal. The, these kings, they could be poisoned, they could be assassinated in various ways, and, and they would employ people like Nehemiah, basically, to verify that they were not about to die as a result of food poisoning, a lot more serious than a stomach problem, uh, death, or, or, or poisoned wine. And uh, the way that the cupbearer would do this is by first sampling what the king had to eat. Now, just as today we talk about people who are the secretary of the treasury or the secretary of state. And these people are more than secretaries. They're not, they're not just taking dictations and writing memos. These are, these are powerful people. So also for Nehemiah to be the cupbearer, this would mean that he would be present at every one of the king's meals. And the king is not going to have somebody around him that he doesn't want to talk to. So, the, so Nehemiah is going to have a very significant advisory role in the presence of the king. And I, I, I suspect that if you're the cupbearer of the king, you probably have authority over, over all the kitchen staff and over most people who come and go in, in, the, in the palace because you need that kind of authority. If, if you're going to make sure that you're going to live, you want trustworthy people working in the kitchen. You want reliable guards at the gates of the palace making sure that uh, people that don't need to be in the kitchen poisoning the food don't get into the kitchen to poison the food. So Nehemiah probably has a, a massive amount of authority there in the palace. So it's very significant. This would, this would be like... Um, the, the second man in command over all the kingdom uh, being a, a, a devoted student of the Bible who loves God's kingdom and is going to use his influence with the king to advance God's kingdom. So this is, this is massive that Nehemiah is in this role. So he goes before the king and he, and he, he makes known his request and he, and he asks, the king says in verse 4, 
What are you requesting? Now, we've seen an extended period of prayer from Nehemiah. He's continued for, for months praying. And, and we see that because he gets the word in the, the, uh, the month of Kislev, which is November, December of, of the 20th year, 446 B.C. And then he goes before the king in the month of Nisan in the 20th year, which is March, April. So from, from November, December to March, April, which is, you know, uh, three to four months, Nehemiah has been praying to the Lord to remember and to grant him mercy, to hear his prayer. He's been fasting, continued in this for months. Then he, he has an opportune moment before the king. The king says, what do you want? And so Nehemiah says in verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And what we see about Nehemiah is that he's a man of, of long extended periods of prayer and he's a man who relies on the Lord in the moment of crisis. And, and he just immediately on the spot prays, then he answers the king. And the king, answer, he basically says, let me go back and, and rebuild the walls, verse 5. Verse 6, the king says, how long will you be gone and will, when will you return? And uh, I think that from what we see in verse 7, uh, we see that Nehemiah has not only been praying, he's also been making calculations and looking into what all he will need for this venture. So he gives the king exactly what he's going to need in verses 7 and 8. And he asks for the materials, and he tells, he's able to tell him how long he'll be gone. So he's calculated the, the amount of time that the journey will take, and then the amount of time that the project will take to rebuild the walls. Uh, and, 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 and he's able to give the king all this information on the spot. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he's got these two opponents in verse 10 of, of Nehemiah 2. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So these two guys, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're not happy that somebody's going to seek the welfare of the people of God. Nehemiah comes in, and, and, and you can read this narrative. He, he, he goes on a covert inspection mission at night, and he doesn't uh, declare uh, yet what he's come to do. And then uh, he, he gives this sort of inspiring speech, and, and, he, and he recounts the way that the Lord has in, answered his prayers in verses 17 and following. And the people respond in verse 18 of Nehemiah 2, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. So the people are, are encouraged by the answered prayers that Nehemiah recounts to them in verse 18, and they, and they respond to his call, and they're ready to rebuild. But, verse 19, opposition from Tan Sanballat and Tobiah, same kind of opposition that we saw in the book of Ezra, uh, they, they, in verse 18, jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? which is it's a subtle uh, but, but uh, inflammatory kind of insinuation. And, and they're, they're trying to suggest that if you really know what's good for you, you'll stop this. Because if you don't, the king might get word, because someone might tell him, and I have a good idea who, who that someone might be, about what you're doing, and this looks like rebellion. And that could be dangerous for you. Verse 20, Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's confidence is in the Lord. Notice how Nehemiah doesn't say, look, I know the king and the king trusts me. No, Nehemiah says, look, we're serving God and he's going to protect us. Ne Nehemiah is a man of faith. Chapter 3 tells us uh, who all arose to build and where all they built. And then in chapter 4, um, we get uh, more opposition from T Sanballat and uh, Tobiah, and they're mocking. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 and following, Nehemiah prayer, prays a prayer against these opponents. So he says in verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So this is like Psalm 2, 
where uh, Psalm 2, you know, the, the peoples gather together against the Lord and, and against His anointed one, and they, they, ha they, they plot this vain thing, let us throw off their fetters and break their bonds from on us. And then it says, the one who sits in the heavens laughs, and he mocks at them in his anger. And, and then there's this warning, therefore, be warned, O kings of the earth, be wise, kiss the Son, the, the, the Son of David, the Messiah, the Son of God, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in the way. And Nehemiah is essentially encountering people who are opposed to what God is doing, and then he's praying in keeping with Psalm 2 that God would punish them, that God would thwart their efforts to, to uh, keep back His kingdom, turn their evil back on their own heads, and then punish them for their iniquity. And I submit to you that we ought to pray this way today. We ought to pray that the, the enemies of the gospel would either be converted or that all their efforts to oppose the gospel would be thwarted, even if it means they have to be killed. We should pray that God would uh, convert them or keep them from stopping the advance of the gospel. Convert them, Lord, or, or thwart all their efforts to ruin families, to destroy lives, and to keep people from hearing the good news of the saving message of Jesus. We ought to pray like Nehemiah. He's a model for us here. So they built the wall, and, and I love this phrase in the, in the, at the end of Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. He says, he says, all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They wanted it. They wanted to build the kingdom of God, and they were ready to get after it. Lord, give us people who have a mind to work. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're gonna, they plot these things and they try to intimidate the people and, and there are these rumors flying around and what Nehemiah does in response in verse 8 is he prays, in verse 9, he prays to our God and set a guard against, as pre protection against them in the night. They pray and they take action and this is a good biblical model for us. This is the way that we should respond to threats from the outside. We should pray and then we should be shrewd and wise. And uh, then look at the way that Nehemiah charges uh, the troops in, in verses 13 and 14. He tells us in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 13, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open space places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know what Nehemiah is saying? He's saying there are things that are more important than you maintaining your life. Things like the Lord. So the Lord is more important than you continuing your life. And if it means risking your life, if it means dying, the Lord is that significant. And these people, your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes, these things too are more important. They are more significant than you maintaining your life. So if it costs you your life, you must defend these people. There, there, is, there is a greater good than mere peace at the expense of devotion to the Lord and the protection of those whom we love. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. Nehemiah is claiming that his prayers have been answered and that God has responded to his pleas and frustrated the, the, the plans of his enemies. Then he says in verse 15, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And then uh, he goes on to recount how they built and how they planned. And, and, and this is a, a, a wonderful account of, of um, devotion to, to the work here. And, and, and he tells us, Nehemiah does in, in chapter 4, verse 17, that those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And then he goes on and he says in verse uh, 22, 
He says in verse 21, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They don't even have time for a bath and a change of clothing. They're working all day, then they've got these guard shifts at night, and, and as they work, they're holding a weapon and they're holding a tool, and they're just after it. And I love that, that depiction, and, and, and I love the way that it, it uh, communicates what we're after today. And when I read this passage, I often think of the students who are at this seminary and other seminaries like this one, because so many of you, you're, you're, you're holding down a full-time job and, and you're caring for your family and you're, you're working at school to serve the Lord and you're seeking to build the kingdom of God, just like Nehemiah was, not by building a physical wall, but by making disciples. And as you study and as you prepare, you're, you're readying yourself. You're giving yourselves the, the tools and the equipments to build the kingdom, to, to build the temple, which are which is made up of disciples, people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, and so I want to encourage you, be like Nehemiah and this crowd of people who had a mind to work and, and be encouraged that you're not the first person to labor by day and then, and then do guard duty by night. You're not the first person to hold the weapon in one hand and the tool in the other. Give yourself to this work. It is bigger than you are. It is greater than you are. And we are praying for you and we are praying that the Lord will use you to make disciples and to build his kingdom in our day. So the people had a mind to work. And then, and then um, in chapter 5, Nehemiah encounters uh, Jews who are oppressing other Jews. And, and I, I, maybe I've done this at other points in this uh, semester, but um, what, what's going on here is you, you have wealthy Jews who are taking advantage of, of, of Jews who are less, uh, less economically advantaged, poor people, and, and they're exploiting them. Now, what, what I want to observe about a passage like this is that Nehemiah is not addressing economic injustice among the Ammonites, right? And, and he could care less what Tobiah and his crowd do with their money. And, and Nehemiah is not uh, over in Susa lobbying for the relief of the poor. No, in, in Nehemiah, now I'm not saying he's not a just man, and I'm not saying he's not concerned for the poor, but what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5 is Nehemiah concerned for the people of God and, and the regulations on financial dealings that he imposes here are drawn straight from the book of Deuteronomy. The, the book of Deuteronomy says to Jews and, and Leviticus, these books say to Jews, you're not to exact interest from your fellow Jews. If you want to take interest from the, the Canaanites or some other nationality, fine, but you don't take interest from your fellow Jews. That's what's being abused here. So Nehemiah is, is worked up about this issue, and he's defending the poor and needy because the Bible tells him to. Uh, challenge for you, okay? Uh, look through the Old and New Testaments and find me a place where the people of God are commanded to address economic injustices outside the people of God. Find me a place where, um, where, where the people of God are exhorted to give a cup of cold water without reference to the, people, to the, to the needy person that you give the cup of cold water being a member of the people of God. My, my point is, every one of these texts, like, in, like in, uh, when Jesus says, you know, uh, whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, those little ones are the are the, the people in the community. They're, they're, they're the people in the church. In my name. Uh, every one of these texts has some kind of delimitor that, that says, you're to do this for other Christians, essentially. 
uh, in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, every one of these poor and needy texts, these have to do with Israelites. That is to say, Moses and the prophets and Nehemiah, they're not concerned with what the Egyptians do to non-Israelite poor people. They're not concerned with that. They're concerned with the people of God. And, and Jesus and the apostles, when Paul is going around doing this collection for the poor in Jerusalem, he's doing this for the poor believers, members of the church in Jerusalem. And, and even a text like James where it talks about that poor man uh, coming to you who's in, need, who's in need, he comes into the synagogue, right? And so, so these are, these are or in, into, the, into the church, essentially. These are all church contexts. And, and I think what that says to us is that we, as, we, as we address uh, people who are in need, our first concern needs to be uh, members of the church who are in need. And then, and then beyond that, I, I, I think the church is not necessarily called um, to, to do anything other than to preach the gospel. And then, and then if these people become disciples, if they become believers, well then, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll help them. Now, I'm not saying you, you, de you deny people help if, if, if you're able, but I think there is a valid distinction that can be made between what the church is summoned to do and then what individual Christians should do out of charity or mercy or generosity on their own, not necessarily as a ministry of the church, but simply out of, out of love for uh, neighbor or love for other people. But the church's resources and the church's abilities are to be used for the benefit of Christians. At least that's, that's what I see in the Old and New Testaments. So find me a text. Find me a text that, that indicates that the church should uh, be concerned for the poor at large. Or find me a text that says that the church should be concerned with, with the world's economic injustices. I don't think they're there. I think every one of these contexts deals with the people of God. And I think that's a point at which there, about which there's a lot of confusion in our day. There, I think there are fools, fools who are taking their money and they're just giving it away. And, and this is not wise. You're not advancing the gospel. You're not really helping these people. You're, you may be funding their drug habit or, or uh, giving them money to go buy more alcohol, but you're not really addressing what the problem is. And the problem is they're not reconciled to God. And to the degree that, that you're funding their habit, you're being cruel to them. To the degree that you're not see, see, seeking to have them reconciled to a holy God and meeting their real need through the gospel, you're being cruel to them. It's as though you're saying to someone who's, who's on the Titanic and it's just hit, hit the iceberg, well, you know, I, I've got this lifeboat over here uh, but here, here, you take this drug, or you take this alcohol, or here, you take this cash and, and, uh, and do what you will. Meanwhile, I'm going to the lifeboat. See ya. And, and they're going to sink. They're going to drown. They're going to die. And it's not going to help them that you gave them money or a feast or, or uh, funds for their habit on their way to hell. That's not going to benefit them. N nor is it going to benefit them if you, if you somehow uh, lobby for some sort of just society that makes them rich, whether they work or not, while they burn it, while they go to hell. That, that, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to make disciples, and we're here to proclaim the gospel. So, so this narrative in Nehemiah 5 is about uh, obeying the, the law. And then Nehemiah, um, he, he attests to his own fear of God in, in verse 15, and he talks about how the, the, the former uh, governors basically abused the people, but because of the fear of God, he did not conduct himself that way. And then in chapter 6, there's this conspiracy against Nehemiah. Uh, they try to lure him to a meeting place, and they're going to ambush him. And then he encounters uh, false prophets who uh, prophesied to him of danger and urge him to flee. And I, I think what, what, what guides Nehemiah's rejection of the false prophet in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, what guides his rejection of that message is that the, the false prophet is not saying to him, Nehemiah, uh, God is going to accomplish the work and God is going to protect you and, and have no... He's not telling him a message of God. He's urging him... He's urging him... Uh, 
to do what amounts to the opposite of trusting God and to do what amounts to the opposite of pursuing the work that he's been called to do. And so Nehemiah discerns, verse 12 of Nehemiah 6, he, he says, I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And the, then Nehemiah prays against them again in verse 14 and then verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That's the program. The peoples round about are to hear what a great God is there in Jerusalem, and they're to fear that God, and they're to be subjected to that God, and God's glory is to, is to spread over the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. But we've got these problems. We've got these problems because, uh, as we see in verses 17 through 19, there, there's duplicity and, um, and a lack of undiluted devotion among the leadership of Israel. So in verse 17, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. In other words, Jewish people have intermarried with the family of Tobiah. And, and these people are bound by oath to be loyal to Tobiah. So their loyalties are divided where they should be only devoted to the Lord and His kingdom, they've got these divided loyalties, and they're also committed to these people of the world. And so they're trying to talk Him up in, his, in Nehemiah's presence in verse 19, and, uh, and uh, it, it's, it, it doesn't bode well for what's going on in Jerusalem. Nehemiah 7 uh, recounts both uh, some people that that Nehemiah set in place uh, to oversee Jerusalem and then a list of the returned exiles. And then in chapter 8, they have this wonderful ceremony where, where Ezra is going to teach the people the law. And then uh, in response to the hearing of the law, the people confess their sin in Nehemiah 9. And it's as though revival is breaking out. It's as though they've, they've heard the Bible and they're responding to it. And they're, and they're confessing their sin and they're confessing God's greatness. And they're calling on Him to do what He has promised. And then they, they make a covenant to, to renew their devotion to the Lord and to obligate themselves to the Lord. And look at what they commit themselves to in Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, verses 30 through 32. They say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So we're not going to intermarry with these people. Verse 31, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We're not going to intermarry. We're going to keep Sabbath and we're going to keep the sabbatical years. Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. So we're going to keep the temple. We're going to, we're going to keep, uh, maintain the temple's upkeep. This amounts to a promise to fulfill all of the Torah. These are just representative uh, aspects of the Mosaic law, and they're basically saying, we're, we're going to do the Torah of Moses. We're renewing our commitment. Uh, they, they commit themselves to this willingly, and then we see that they fail. But first, there's this wonderful uh, celebration where they dedicate the law in Nehemiah 12, and, um, and they have this, this glorious uh, procession where they have uh, one, one uh, almost like a parade, like this, uh, this troop of singers and choirs that's led by Nehemiah, and then this other troop that's led by Ezra, and they, they, they make their ways around the wall, and then they... They, they, they're marching on top of the wall, and then they join together at the temple, and they praise God, and, and, and the, uh, the songs of praise and thanksgiving go up to Him. And then, um, in Nehemiah 13, he talks about how he's gone back to, uh, to Babylon. And uh, so, so look, for instance, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4. Now, before this... 
Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So this is just astonishing. This is just amazing. Nehemiah, in, in the 32nd year of the king, he tells us there in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 6, which um, uh, that is going to be in 434 B.C. So earlier, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, he had told us that in the 20th year, he, he, had, he had come to Jerusalem. That was 446. So now the 32nd year, 12 years have gone by, and you subtract 12 from 446, and you get down to 434. Uh, and, and so um, Nehemiah goes back to Babylon. And while he's gone, this guy Eliashib, who's over the temple, sets it up so that the enemy of the people of God... Tobiah, this guy that tried to keep them from, from building the walls, this guy that tried to keep them, keep Nehemiah from accomplishing his mission. He even tried to kill Nehemiah. They give him a place to live in the temple. It's amazing. It is just astonishing. You have a clear enemy of God and his kingdom who is living in the temple. And Nehemiah's response is Christ-like. You remember what Jesus did when he came into the temple and he, and he saw the merchants that didn't belong there and he drove them out, he cleansed the temple? That's exactly what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 8. He tells us, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So, so Nehemiah's anger is righteous indignation. It's concern for the glory of the Lord. And, and Tobiah doesn't belong there, so Nehemiah throws him out. This is great. This is wonderful. And then he rebukes the officials, and he says in verse 11, Why is the house of God forsaken? And then in verse 15, he, he says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath day. They're not keeping the Sabbath like they committed themselves to. So he rebukes them for this. And then he enforces the word. And, and look at what he says in verse 18. This is why he's concerned about this. He says, Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. In other words, isn't this what got us exiled? And we're doing it over, we're doing it again, and we're going to get exiled again. And then, down in verse 21, we read, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is they can't read the Bible. If you don't know Hebrew, you can't read the Bible. And the fact that these, uh, these Jews who have married these foreign women, the fact that they're not bothering to teach the children the Bible says to us, those foreign women haven't converted to the worship of Yahweh. And, and this is, these are not instances where people are, are being redeemed from the nations. These are instances where Jews are becoming uh, they're, they're intermarrying with the nations and they're becoming like the nations. They're, they're, they're uh, uh, forsaking the Lord. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 25. This is, this is just amazing. This is one of those verses that every time I read it, I'm amazed that this is in the Bible. And, but, but it's one of those things that just confirms again and again and again how truthful and relevant and and earthy and real the Bible is. So you want to be authentic? You want to be, you want to have uh, a genuineness about you? Be a person of the Bible. Be like Nehemiah. Look at, look at what Nehemiah 13, 25 says. He says, I confronted them 
and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. The reason, verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Aren't we going to get exiled for this if we do this again? Now, when he confronts them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, I don't think we're to understand that, that Nehemiah uh, felt the freedom to utter expletives. That's not what's going on here. I think this is a curse uh, that amounts to, to him saying, God is going to damn you. I think that's the kind of curse we have here, not the kind of curse that, that we think of, you know, that you see in the movies that are rated R for language. That's not what he's talking about. He, he, the, Nehemiah is a man of God, and, and when he curses people, he's calling down curses from the Lord upon them. And when he beats them and pulls out their hair, I think it's as though he's enacting the mourning that they should uh, uh, engage in for the sins that they've committed. So this is not just a blind rage that flies off the handle and starts flowing with dirty language. No, that's not what this is. This is a deeply religious calling on God to act against these infidels and then a, a physical enforcing against these infidels what they ought to do themselves. Back when Ezra mourned the people of God uh, uh, intermarrying in, in this way, um, he 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 uh, tells us in in Ezra nine three that he tore his garment and his cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. That's the kind of pulling out their hair that Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah is sort of doing a, an enforced mourning exercise. It's as though they're not beating their breasts over their sins, so he's he's beating them for the for them. And they're not pulling out their hair, so he pulls out their hair for them to, to communicate to them the severity of the evil of what they're doing. And, and the curses go the same way. God is going to curse you for this, is essentially what he's saying, probably in stronger language. And again, this is, this is out of concern for the Lord and his people. Look at what he tells us in Nehemiah 13, 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So the high priest's son has married the daughter of Sanballat. So Nehemiah says, therefore I chased him from me. So he drives him out. He, he drives him out. And then he prays, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provi provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Uh, Nehemiah begins and ends with prayer. There, that prayer at the end, this is not just a self-focused, self-interested prayer. This is a prayer that the Lord would bless the labor of his hands and confirm his work and, 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 and be merciful to him for his devotion to Yahweh and his cause. So again, here in Nehemiah, it's evident that the people don't have transformed hearts. They don't have the Torah written on their hearts because they're not obeying it. They're not obeying Moses' commands that they not intermarry with the peoples of the lands and not engage in the abominations of the peoples of the lands. And this is problematic because God's glory is to advance through the righteousness of these people. And these people are not righteous. They're not even concerned with the Lord. They're not even concerned enough with the Lord to keep the enemies of God from living in the temple. They're not even concerned enough with the Lord. The, the high priest is not even concerned enough with the Lord to keep his own son from marrying the daughter of the enemy of God and his people. That, that is an indication of radical apostasy within the people of God. So it's, it's a tale that is much like what's happening in our day. It's a tale of people who are seeing prophecies fulfilled. They're seeing 
they're seeing prayers answered and they're faithfully pursuing revival and renewal and, and, and the Lord's glory and they're confronted by faithlessness in their own ranks and opposition from the outside. That's exactly what happens in churches today. The book of Nehemiah is not about the building program that your church wants to initiate. It's not about a bigger and better building. It's about the people of God. It's about, the peop it's about God's glory being advanced through the faith, uh, faith working through love produced righteousness that, that the people of God live out in obedience to the scriptures. That's what Nehemiah is, is about. So if we want to, to be genuine and, and authentic, we, we've got to be um, rightly related with God. To be genuine, to be authentic, is to recognize that the most important thing in the universe is the Lord. And if you pursue some kind of op authenticity or genuineness that disregards the word of the Lord, you're not being authentic. You're being false, and you're posing for the world against the one to whom authenticity really matters. And you, you ought to be authentic to the Lord, not authentic to the world. Who, who cares what the world thinks? It's the Lord who matters. Who cares what these cool, faddish people thinks? think? It's the Lord who matters. And it's to our own master that we stand or fall. So you want to pursue authenticity? Be a student of the scriptures. You want to pursue authenticity? Be supremely devoted to God and His kingdom. You want to pursue authenticity? Be one who makes disciples by preaching the gospel, the gospel that you have to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. That's how you pursue authenticity. That's how you build the kingdom, not by wearing the right clothes, not by looking right to the right people, and not by setting aside the Bible to do what you think is right, to, to do what makes sense to you, to lean on your own understanding. That is the path to nowhere. That's the path to being set aside by the Lord. Well, that completes our study of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, when we uh, return for our final two lectures, we will look at the book of Esther and the book of Ruth, and we'll do those in the next session.